0: I always encourage people to pay attention and look at those habits. Just watch what's going in your shopping cart, say, what is it that's going in there? Is there one of those things that you can figure out how to make at home or do from scratch? You're not going to do it all. That's just crazy making, and it's going to just exhaust you. But one thing, start with one. And as you start with that one, it's going to build and that change is going to end up being something that sticks a little bit for the rest of your
1: life, really.
2: We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right
1: now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in.
2: I have a story today. Exciting. This is a true story. It actually happened in 1963 in East Tennessee when I was a small child, and my dad was practicing medicine in the area as he did for many years. One day he was called into a case where five people from the same family had come into the emergency room, and they were all exhibiting very sudden symptoms. They were sick, they were dizzy. One of them was even a small child, three-year-old. They were complaining of vision problems. Oh, a no. couple of them thought they were going blind. And one of them oh my gosh. was even suffering from hallucinations. Didn't know where he was, was disoriented, was seeing things. And this all came onto these people very, very suddenly. All at the same time? Yeah. Within an hour or two of each other, they didn't know what it was. So come to find out, these people had earlier that day, at noon, had all sat down to lunch together. And, you know, they talked about everything they'd eaten. So they began to suspect botulism. So they called in the state health department, were going over the symptoms and everything pointed towards botulism, except it wasn't exactly the symptoms of botulism. So they were really but they decided to treat them for botulism anyway, and they had to ship in the medicine from Knoxville, which was a couple hours away, so we couldn't treat them right away, and the story goes that my dad was on the phone with the state health department in Nashville, and he was explaining the symptoms, and they were talking about this case, and while he was on the phone, another doctor that was in another room talking to the family, the people said, hold on a minute. They've said something that might be a clue. And my mm-hmm. dad was on the phone with Nashville and said, wait a minute. They're saying it might have something to do with tomatoes mm-hmm. that they had for lunch. And so this began an investigation of what about those tomatoes? And turns out that those tomatoes were not normal tomatoes. The guy had grafted his tomatoes, with jimson weed. Oh. <laughs> because jimson weed is hardy. And he wanted... Hardier tomatoes. Grow tomatoes that were going to go past the frost. Wow. Then they started scrambling around and checking the symptoms of jimson weed poisoning. And it's very toxic. And it turned out it was a perfect match. And they were able to, to treat it and medicate that and get these people through it. Whoa. But then on further investigation, they said, so what gave you this idea? And this was a farmer. He said his neighbor had done it for years and years oh. with no consequences. So there was actually a writer for the New Yorker magazine did a the whole New story. The New Yorker
1: magazine? <laughs>
2: yes, he did a whole story on it. And he went down there and he explored. And come to find out that the neighbor that had been doing this for a while had trimmed the leaves off the jimson weed as the tomato was growing. This other guy had left the leaves on. So that was what was causing the tomatoes to have more toxicity than the neighbor. So I guess the moral of the story is don't graft your tomatoes with jimson weed.
1: (laughs) Well, unless you take the leaves off. No. You're still getting poison. Yeah, it's still
2: not a good idea because jimson
1: weed is really toxic. Okay, yeah.
2: So this whole story was written up in the New Yorker magazine. It was a multi-page article, May of 1965. And they are still baffled by the fact that the, the first guy could do it and, and it not be affected because
1: Jimson wheat is really toxic.
2: But it became a very curious medical case.
1: That's amazing. The Great Tomato Mystery of 1963. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a story that's still told in the area and a very interesting medical mystery. Yeah. And it involved my dad. So don't graft your tomatoes with jimson and weed. <laughs> don't graft your tomatoes with jimson and
1: weed, everyone. <laughs>
2: It's another example of the true power of plants, and you really have to know what you're doing. Yeah. We always say that about herbs and medicinal plants and all that. These things really are powerful. They do have substances in them that have an effect on the bodies.
1: I also love that idea of, well, grafting is just really cool in general. It is crazy when you're like... I have this plant that does this, and this plant that does this. Let's see what happens if we put them together. So, in a way, humans have been genetically modifying. Yeah. And the moment when we decided that we could control nature, yeah, <laughs> is sort of when things went haywire. And in many ways, we've been able to learn how to work more with nature. But that's just a really good example. Ah, you can't quite control everything and you know as
2: we'd like to say humans are ingenious yeah how far humans have come since they've been on the planet we're ingenious and sometimes our ingenuity gets us into trouble but how we learn things and mm-hmm. so forth
1: but how cool is it too that that story also involved modern medicine and they were able to be treated because they knew what it was yes. whereas had that happened probably at that point even just A couple decades earlier, they probably wouldn't have had a cure, and it could have been fatal. Who knows?
2: It absolutely could have been fatal. As the story is told, the one that had the worst reaction. One of the men had eaten the most tomatoes and apparently the child had only eaten like a little sliver. He had said he couldn't see very well and he was sick at his stomach. He had the mildest reaction and it went on up from there to the guy who had eaten a lot of the tomato and was seeing things and didn't know where he was. So it's, oh my gosh, symptoms all ran the gamut. But you know, jimson weed is super common. I'm sure a lot of our gardeners out there have encountered it. Mm -hmm. And these farmers observed that it survived the frost. And so why not? It's like a Mm -hmm. strong, hardy plant with a lot of vigor. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can grow some tomatoes on it. It's not a good idea. Interesting.
1: Yes. Don't eat the jimson weed. Do not eat the jimson weed. How do you spell
2: it, mom? J-I-M-S-O-N. And we will uh, link the Actual article from, from the New Yorker, the New Yorker. magazine. Yorker. Yeah, and you can actually get into
1: the archives and so cool and read it. It goes into very great detail about all of it. Well, thank you for that story, Mom. That was great. We're excited to welcome you to the Good Dirt Podcast. If this is your first time here, if you're a longtime listener, welcome back. Thank you for being here. We come on here every Friday with different interviews with people, artists, farmers, dreamers in the space of sustainability, and we explore sustainability and the general paradigm shift to a happier and healthier and more harmonious planet from all different angles. And we love being a part of these conversations, and we're so honored to share them with you. If you love this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It would help us out so much, and it would help other people who are looking for a podcast exactly like The Good Dirt to find us and to be convinced to click the play button. We know that you guys have so many options when you go to listen to things. We just really appreciate you being here. We appreciate your leaving a review. Let's get on to the episode. Speaking
2: of gardening and growing things, today we have Chris Bordessa. She's a longtime gardener a certified master food preserver, and she's an award-winning book author. She lives in Hawaii, and she's learning to grow food in a climate that's vastly different from where she grew up. Her gardening is part of a larger effort to live a more self-reliant lifestyle that treads more lightly on the earth. She loves helping people learn that they can provide for themselves from producing food to cooking at home, and she has strong opinions about our food
1: system plastic waste and GMOs so get ready to listen her most recent book is attainable sustainable you might have heard of it the lost art of self-reliant living published by national geographic she's the founder of the website by the same name attainable sustainable where she writes about food from the ground up and she covers gardening recipes food preservation and greener living so we hope you
2: enjoy this conversation with Chris Bordessa of attainable sustainable
0: I am Chris Bordessa. I am at attainablesustainable.net. And I am also the author of a book by the same name, Attainable Sustainable, The Lost Art of Self-Reliant Living. And it came out 2020 from National Geographic Books. So my background in how I got started with this goes back a number of years back to, I think they're now calling the Great Recession. I am in Hawaii, so one of the problems of living in Hawaii, there are a lot of great things about being here, but one of the problems is that our food comes in on barges. They estimate like 80 to 85% of our food comes in on barges rather than being grown here, which is a crying chain. But we were having a conversation, this friend and I, talking about how we can kind of solve this problem in our own homes. And, you know, this is a real issue and prices were going up and all of this. So we, you know, we talked about the idea of doing, let's start doing one thing at a time. How can we tackle just, you know, one small project at a time to make ourselves a little bit more self-reliant? And I have a little bit of background in gardening and farming. My dad was an apple farmer and, you know, that's my background. So as we were talking about this, I felt like I had a little bit of knowledge anyway. And somehow in the conversation, it came up that she did not realize that radishes grew underground. Oh my gosh. right? And I was very kind about it. But what I realized was this is something, I may not be an expert necessarily, I may not be the best gardener out there, but I obviously had knowledge that a lot of people don't have, right? Yeah. You know, so that was kind of the reason that I started working on this project in the first place is I thought I have knowledge and how can I get it out there so that other people can start kind of tackling this kind of lifestyle so they can start figuring out how to become a little bit more silver reliant in their lives.
1: Yeah. It's interesting when, I mean, to people like us, and maybe most people listening to this podcast, the radishes growing underground thing, something that we've learned in doing this project with Lady Farmer is there are so many things like that, that, and I'm sure the other way around too, it's just striking the knowledge gaps, I guess, that we have because knowledge hasn't been a necessity in the last, I don't know, half a century or 60, 70 years, however long now. So yeah, that's amazing. And it's such a great anecdote for how you decided that you needed to start sharing your knowledge. So what did that look like? Was it a blog? How did that look?
0: Interestingly, at the time, my background is in publishing. I was a freelance writer for many years and I had written a number of books and I thought I could take this information that I have and help people by writing a book easy peasy, right? So easy. <laughs> so in the, in the publishing industry, what they want to see is a platform. They want to know that you've got people who are interested in this book that you're talking about writing. So I knew that my first step had to be creating that platform. So I dived into this world that I did not understand or know anything about and started blogging with the intent of creating the platform and generating interest in this to see if people were interested in this and from there, being able to pitch a book to a publisher. So that was in 2010, probably, that I started doing that. And what happened is I did set up that platform, put myself out there. I started pitching agents and publishers, and it's kind of crickets. It wasn't going very well. And I've had an agent actually tell me, The market is saturated. Nobody wants this book. Mm. I thought, all right, fine. I'm making a difference online. I can continue just doing my work online, no problem, because I I was at that point starting to build an audience and had people who are interested in this sort of thing. And it was going great. And then in 2016, I actually got a phone call from National Geographic who said, have you ever thought about writing a book? Oh, weird. You're like, yes, thank you. Of course, I have actually take <laughs> a book. And they had kind of an idea in their minds what they wanted the book to look like. And it was very similar to the book that I had been pitching for several years. So a little bit of a kismet
1: story as far as how that looked at the beginning. Or it's just you were way ahead of your time. Just <laughs> having a up with you.
0: That platform actually did eventually work, right? Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, so I spent then, you know, several years writing the book and I've continued to keep the website up and going. And it's, you know, the website is still there. I've recently added a community where people can join and talk with me and other people who are in a similar area of interest. Yeah. It's so great to have the internet to be able to kind of, I mean, I kind of put people all over the world. And that's just amazing to me.
2: Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit to talk about living in Hawaii. And you said most of the food is shipped in. And I think this is really interesting. I think a lot of people don't think about that. So Hawaii, would you call it a food desert in a way? Are there a lot of farmers out there where you can already get local food? Was that an issue? It's an interesting question as far as considering a food desert
0: And really ever considered it that way Mm -hmm. because we do have access to the food. It's just a matter of where the food is coming from. We have plenty of space here to be growing a lot of food. And there are farmers who are doing so. We've got great farmers markets, but it's not the bulk of the food that is being produced or being consumed here. I want Hawaii Island, which is a very rural island. And Oahu is where Honolulu is. And that is the big city. And there's not a lot of farm area there. So, it's very diverse as far as what each island looks like, but there's potential to grow so much of our food. We at one point had the largest beef facility in the United States. It's no longer the largest, but it's still
1: quite large. And is that like a commercial, like industrial beef? It's not a capo. These
0: animals are all grass-fed. There's huge open fields and pastures where the cattle graze. So there's not capo kind of an operation. It's all grass-fed beef. But what happens is that grass-fed beef is shipped out to the mainland because we don't have the processing facilities here to handle it. We don't have any of the butchering operations that we need. So those cattle are shipped out live on the hoof by plane, I shouldn't say shipped, I guess they're flown out. Oh my gosh. And then processed on the mainland. Talk about carbon footprint. Absolutely fries me that this is what happens. But then the next best thing that happens is that the beef that we get back is CAFO beef because the grass fed beef, it sells at a higher price on the mainland. It's just a really, really screwed up system. So that's just one example. I even walk into a grocery store and any time of year, there are mangoes on the shelf. And that's great. And people who visit here love to see the mangoes on the shelf, but they're only grown here during June and July. They haven't season, just like other things. So they're shipped in just so that we have tourists who can enjoy those mangoes. So food desert? No, I don't think so. But we have a real problem with not producing enough of our food here.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. So... In times of like high fuel and so forth, do you see a sharp increase in the food prices there? Yes. So, like right now, is it crazy?
0: Food prices right now are just through the roof. Hawaii is notorious for its expensive food. I haven't found it to be, my family's from California, so I haven't found it to be too much higher than what we would pay in California, except for a few items are dairy and things like bread. Yeah, I
1: remember hearing that like milk is like $7 a gallon or something. Um, I think that's probably cheap right now. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have the dairies. Yeah. Very, very limited
0: and that's all shipped in. So yes, absolutely. When the fuel prices and such go up, we see it reflected in the
1: food. I know that you obviously are thinking about this and you and your friend, you said the Great Recession, that would have been 2008. Is that the one we're talking about? Yeah. Are people connecting the dots with we should be farming more, we should be sourcing more locally or like what is that conversation like?
0: Here in a way. Yeah. I think that people are talking about it. I think there is a percentage of people who are going beyond talking about it. They're making a difference We have a lot of, especially young people coming in and farming and trying to grow food and very aware of, hey, we have a problem here. Mm-hmm. It's not quite enough. Right now, you know, anything that obviously they're not consuming themselves is going to the farmer's market or maybe to restaurants. I know some farmers who are selling to restaurants, but it's not getting into the general population where so many people are shopping at the supermarkets, you know? Yeah. It's a certain clientele. Not everybody goes to the farmer's markets. A lot of people are still going to the store to shop for their produce and such. And then of course, there are a lot of people who still really are depending on the packaged foods, the ready-made, the Lunchables.
2: Frozen. Right? Yeah. You had the conversation with a friend and you started blogging and you set up the website and then you got the book contract.
0: Right. So that was 2016 that I had the book contract and it was four years between the contract and the publishing date. Part of it was that it's a huge undertaking. It's a big book. But then, you know, there were a couple of different delays and they rescheduled the pub date for it. But it came out March of 2020. That is so weird. If you paid attention to
1: Chris, right? Same as us though, Chris, we had a book, our book, The Guide to Slow Living, similar thing. It was like delayed and delayed. And then March 2020 was the date we finally settled on. Isn't that weird? What a coinky dink.
0: So yeah, so it came out in March 2020. And any kind of ideas we had for doing publicity and going out and meeting people and talking with people, kind of went by the wayside. That did not happen. And we did a lot of scrambling, trying to figure out, okay, now what? You know, we're all staying at home. How do I let people know that this book is out and available? So we did a lot of social, I did podcasts, you know, I did some radio interviews, but it was all very remote. But it was also a timely book, right? Super well-timed. What (laughs) happened to, how to do some of this stuff. So it was good in that sense but I didn't get to get out there and meet people and talk with people and hear their stories and what they were you know, they're struggling with or what they were hoping to do.
1: Yeah. So it's an amazing story. So would you consider yourself a homesteader? This is kind of funny
0: because I have talked to people about it and I feel like anybody who is really doing some of these things, even if it's just learning to bake bread and do some food preservation at home, you know, you're kind of a little bit of an urban homesteader. And yet, I kind of don't consider myself a homesteader because I feel like I'm just always trying to catch up. And I mean, I guess that's also such a big part of it, but I'm just not doing the kinds of things that I would like to be doing at the level that I would like to be doing it. So yes and no, yes and no. I think I'm living that kind of a lifestyle, but I am also not raising cattle and butchering cattle and milking a cow or milking a goat. That is not something that I am equipped to do at this stage.
1: Mm -mm. Yeah, you don't have any animals of your own. That you harvest anyway. I do have animals.
0: I keep chickens. They keep okay. chickens for eggs, and we do butcher chickens. That's kind of small scale stuff. And I have a pig. Oh, yeah. His name is Nemo. My son brought him home on Mother's Day a year ago. He said, "Look what I found on the road, Mom." And we have a real. Feral pig problem. <laughs> a feral piglet who was just like the size of a kitten. And of course, as a mom, what do you do? You take the animal and say, Oh, of course I can help it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have this pig because, you know, initially we were thinking we would just get it to the point where it was healthy because it was a little bit strong and just let it go back in the wild, someplace where it's not going to bother anybody's gardens. But one day the sun was shining just right. And I noticed that he, did not have any ear holes. So he's a deaf pig, we cannot hear anything. And that was exactly my response Like, well, now what? Because we have this pig, I'm not equipped to have a pig. What are we gonna do with this pig? We can't let him go because he's deaf. He can't hear Yeah. Of course we did get very attached to him because he's very sweet. We figured out a way to keep him, so he is now our pet pig. Oh my gosh, Nemo. Totally ridiculous. It's Nemo because one of his ears is just a little flat.
2: Yeah. Oh. We had a pet pig once with an ear problem. His name was Frosty because his ear was frostbitten. They're very smart animals. Oh, my gosh.
1: He was the cutest thing. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about Frosty, Mom. That's so funny. That was at the very beginning of the farm. Yeah. I <laughs> oh got So cute. It's, it's
0: amazing what we kind of find ourselves falling into, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So you address a lot about Growing your own food in whatever size space that you have, growing your own food can be really intimidating for some people, especially if they don't have a ton of yard space. So what kinds of things do you tell or do you write about in your book or do you tell people about growing your own food despite space constraints?
0: I am a huge proponent of container gardening because... Yeah. I mean, you can grow just about anything in containers. It's going to depend a little bit on the size of your area, what space you have, and whether or not it gets sunshine. Sunshine is a little bit critical. There are some things that will grow in the shade. But containers, you know, there's just so much to love about container gardening because you don't have to weed it. You know, you've got stuff growing in a container. It's movable. You can get it out of the way or move it to the sunshine if need be. People with a balcony can hang their containers so that they're using a vertical space. It is just... Completely accessible to people, obviously, if you don't have any outside area you 're going to be a little bit limited that 's when I say things like grow microgreens for yourself oh, yeah. uh-huh. but if you 've got any sort of outdoor space, even a small space, you can grow food. One of the tips that I'd have for people and actually I just talked to somebody about this the other day. I was interviewed for New York Times for an article about container gardening and growing in small spaces, and you know the thing that I told her was if you 're choosing a vegetable. That is just kind of a once and done vegetable, like a carrot or a radish that grows in the ground. And in order to harvest it, you pull it, it's done. You enjoy your carrot, you enjoy your radish, and that's it. Instead of that, if you're limited on space, I like to suggest that people go with what are called cut and come again crops. And by that, I mean... Things like celery and Swiss chard are, they grow well in containers. I actually have got some celery growing great right in a container out on my patio right now. And whenever I need celery, I just take my snips out and I go snip off however many stalks I need and I can chop it to put in my dinner and that celery will keep growing and that celery will grow for a year or two, depending on your winter, even over winter wow. So then you've got this one plant and celery is one of those things that you never use the whole bunch when you buy it at the store, right? Yes. And so it's, so it's a wasteful thing. So I just keep it and keep it growing in a container and I just use stalks as I need them. Swiss chard is the same thing. You plant the Swiss chard seed in a pot in the springtime, then it will go all the way through fall. And, and again, you just cut the outer leaves and you can harvest it over and over again all season long. So that's one trick. Lettuce is another one that you can harvest that way if you choose leaf lettuce that, you know, you just harvest the outer leaves and you can continue to have salad off of that plant for several months rather than just pulling the plant. People are always shocked by that. You don't just pull the whole plant. Yeah. Every single time I share something about that on social media, they kind of, everybody comes out of the woodwork and says, really? What? I thought I had to harvest the whole plant. And you don't. You can just take the outer leaves. Those things are good for people who are limited. And then also things that are kind of a, perpetual harvest from, like peppers because that pepper plant will grow and it will produce peppers across weeks and weeks if not a couple of months in your season so you can just harvest those as they ripen Mm,
1: i just thought about eating a fresh pepper is it time yet no not quite yet it's really exciting when it's just like the pepper explosion right so fun yeah. So, yeah. So, you guys, is it just summer all the time there? What is that like? What are your seasons like in Hawaii?
0: Been here for more than a dozen years and I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> we don't have the worst winters. Okay. But I am at a higher elevation. And what that means is it's cool and we do have seasons. You know, it just gets a little too cool to grow a lot of things. We can keep kale growing, you know, some of the cool season vegetables growing all year round. The different fruits that people think of being from Hawaii are very often seasonal. There are a few things you can usually get bananas and papayas pretty much year round. So, so yeah, the seasons are there, but they're very different. Okay. The same thing goes for what I'm growing. I cannot grow zucchini to save my life. Mm. Right. Zucchini has got too many problems here. We cannot. We've got something called a pickle worm that will decimate the crop. Um. I always grew zucchini because it was easy and it's not easy here. So I have just pretty much given it. It's not easy. I don't love it that much that I'm going to fight to grow it. Mm -hmm. We tend to grow things that do well here. We've had to learn what does well here. And of course, we harvest a lot of bananas. That's not something most households are going to be harvesting, but we harvest a lot of bananas. And we grow something called colo, which is the endemic plant that is used to make boy, if you've heard of boy. No, I have no idea what that is. It's a starch crop. Okay. Native Hawaiians have been using this as a really serious, hearty food crop forever. And it can be eaten. It's kind of, it can be used kind of as a potato substitute. Mm -hmm. But traditional way to eat it is as poi which is essentially kind of mashing it and it becomes a very thick paste okay it's an acquired taste for some people i've heard people liken it to eating wallpaper paste but (laughs) we love it it's delicious
1: yum it made me think is it anything like cassava
0: or a yucca well we grow cassava here we also do grow that the hardest thing for me some of these crops go in the ground and they are in the ground for six or nine months and this is a traditional plant it and then we're going to harvest it a couple of months later. It's kind of a longer time frame. Yeah. So I often lose track of when it's ready to be harvested because it's yeah. off a little bit. I'm struggling a little bit with the cassava as far as that goes too. Interesting.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about food preservation. So you grow all this great stuff and then do you practice a lot of food preservation and what are some of your favorite methods?
0: I do but I don't. It's about having moved to Hawaii. I, I am a certified master food preserver. Cool. So yeah, I'm, that sounds official, right? I do preserve food. I do a lot of jam making. I do a lot of pickles. I preserve my own homemade broth for the pantry. But the interesting thing about having moved to Hawaii is that there is such access to fresh food year round. The number of jars of things that I used to make was way more than, than we needed because I wasn't digging into the pantry so much and we didn't have that winter time dry time mm-hmm. to have access to fresh food. So it's a little bit different here. I'm not processing as many things. I mean, I still process a lot. I give it away and jam and give it to people. I liked forage for things that grow here readily. We have what's called strawberry guava. So I will go out and I hate to say it go to waste. If, if I'm not harvesting it, nobody's harvesting it. So it's just falling on the ground. So I will go harvest those sorts of things. See if I can stretch the season a little bit with those by making jam and such.
2: What is strawberry guava?
0: Strawberry guava is?
1: It's like a guava, but it's a strawberry one. What, are you familiar with any guava?
2: Yeah, it's a little tropical. Freak. I'm familiar with the flavor of guava. It's like a green tropical thing. Is strawberry guava like red? Is it?
0: Yeah, the guava that you may think about is a maybe like two inch in diameter. And the one that we could grove here has got either pink or white flesh. Mm-hmm. Very, very, it's inside. A strong guava is related, but it is a very, very small, maybe three quarter inch fruit. And it's red, dark red. And again, it has the hard seeds inside that the flesh is a little bit more jelly-like than the standard guava,
2: which is, you know, has a little bit different texture. Does it grow on a bush or a tree? And what is the season for it? And does it drop on the ground? you pick it up off the ground?
0: It grows on a tree. It is actually highly invasive. Oh, We are on land that is covered with this invasive strawberry guava, it's also called Vibe, it's the Hawaiian term for it. And the, you know the trees are, if they're pruned and cared for, they kind of, the fruit stays a little bit accessible and you can reach it to harvest them. But if not, they will get very, very tall and it just drops. When it's guava season, and you can see people who live in an area where they're driving across guava because they'll just have a, a stripe of guava opal on the bottom of their vehicles.
1: Mm.
0: And, they're, and they're all dropping.
1: It's very delicious. And wow. you make jam? Strawberry guava jam? I make strawberry guava jam, yeah. Yum. We just got our goomy berries are coming in, so we're excited about you know, it.
0: See, no, I don't
1: Okay. Oh, goomy berries. Oh, those are fun.
2: thing about goomy berries is they're a relative of autumn olive, also called autumn berry. I've heard of autumn olive. So it's known as a real pesky invasive, and they're generally kind of hated, but they have this wonderful little berry, but it's so tiny, it's hard to harvest enough of them to really do anything with. So the goomy berry is bigger and juicier, and so I thought I'd try it. And bought a couple of bushes a year ago, and they're just busting out. It's it's great. All these nice little marble-sized red berries—they're so delicious. So oh, awesome, yeah. But yeah, that's a story. Another story of an invasive that it's really a good food source if people would just stop hating it.
0: <laughs> they, they, they they are, are a problem. They, you know, they they really are a problem. But I feel like if they're here and they're making. Have- Yeah, I can. I might as well do something. Exactly. I want to try making a guava barbecue sauce this summer.
1: Ooh, yeah, that'd be really good. Okay, so do you ferment anything? Yeah, I love to ferment, and
0: I'm. I've been canning, you know, ever since I was a child. My mom canned, and I I had access to that. Fermenting is fairly new for me. I've only been doing it probably for the past seven or eight years. So I'm very comfortable with it at this point, but it's not something that I grew up with. So I had to mm-hmm. kind of over that. I hesitated to start fermenting because how many times has your mom said to you, oh, don't eat that. It's it's going off. It's going bad. I can't remember my mom saying, oh, no, don't eat that. It's fermented. Yeah. We're now realizing that, oh, it's actually not such a bad. So I do ferment. Uh, you know, I almost always have fresh sauerkraut going. I, I'm trying to think what are the other things I, I make a, a beet mm-hmm. I'm trying to the we have a uh, vegetable here called pipiñola, also known as chiote. It's kind of squash like, but it's harder than squash. And I yeah. tried doing that. That did not turn out very well. I didn't like the flavor of that. So I had flops too. But, it, you know, definitely I always try to encourage people, gosh, it's the easiest way to preserve foods and stretch the shelf life. Yeah. If you get beyond that hesitation, right?
1: We've had a few different fermenting people on the podcast and it's always so fun. They're some of our most popular episodes and I just love how simple and old it is and yet feels so novel and exciting and there's endless possibilities with it. There's endless pluses or what is it? Benefits. There's so many amazing things about it and yet it's literally just salt and time and it's cool.
0: But the thing that I think is the hardest for a lot of people and it was for me anyway too was there's not an exact recipe. There's not a way to do it or to, to know. I could, when I was writing my book, my editor, who was a little bit of a city girl, and there, there were certain very comical things that happened, but she was like, well, how do you know if it's going bad? How do you know it's working? How do you, and I kept having, they, you just make it. Yeah. <laughs> you just try it. and You, you feel just, it out. You talk to it. <laughs> right, right. She's like, you just smell it. What if it's bad? Well, you'll know it's
2: bad. They say it's it's very safe. I've heard over and over again.
0: You know what? I think it would probably have to taste really bad for it to be really bad for you, and nobody's gonna just. Yeah, then you wouldn't power down eating some really rank tasting food. Yeah, it's just delicious.
2: Also, I I think it's in a lot of ways it's the gateway to food preservation for people that are kind of new to this stuff, and people that are just now getting interested in the idea of growing their own food for all the reasons that it's a good idea. And because it is easy and some people are intimidated by the whole canning thing. I know I'm a little bit intimidated by canning. I I have done it and I do do it, but it's just so easy to pop in from the garden with a few cucumbers and slice them up and throw them in a jar with some salt and be done with it and not have to spend the whole afternoon in it sweaty kitchen. Like you say, for small batches,
0: when you just have a few things, I oftentimes will keep us a, a salt brine in the refrigerator so that as I have things, I can just pour the brine over it and start a ferment. It's mm, that's smart. easy to have that ready to go and just pour that in there. Cause it's, you know, a lot of times it's just the standard brine that, you know, one brine works for a lot of different things. So, you know, it, it really is just a very, very easy way to handle, you know, what am I going to do with these three carrots. Am am I cooking with them tonight? If not, I can just throw them into it, you know, starting up, whatever you bring in from the garden.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's so healthy. So you always have a kraut going there and there's just so many health benefits Mm -hmm. to eating a little bit of fermented food every day. Just even if few tea you know, it's really good.
0: And you know, I'm constantly experimenting because like you say, it's so flexible. There's so many different things. I had broccoli going off in my garden a couple of weeks ago and Faster than we could eat it, and I thought, I wonder if you can ferment broccoli. And I so I tried it. Right? How'd
1: I go? Okay. Oh,
0: so I didn't find anything online that talked about fermenting broccoli. That oh, we'll see what happens. And I tried it. It's delicious.
1: It's just like crunchy, yummy broccoli.
0: Crunchy. It's it remains crunchy, and and you know it's kind of the you know, broccoli's got the little flowers, so it's yeah, a little, little kind of heavily stuff in with the ferment. But it was a great way for me to extend that because I wasn't going to eat it before it was bad.
1: So smart. I even can't eat some of the broccoli that I just like bring home from the farmer's market all the way. I'll do like one thing and roast it or whatever. And then I feel bad about composting the whole chunk, but I guess you could ferment that. Broccoli stalks are the most delicious part
0: of the broccoli.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's my favorite part. I'd rather eat that than the florets. I wish somebody would develop a broccoli that was just the stalk.
1: I <laughs> mean the chunk. The chunk. Yeah, the <laughs> You can put
2: some of the, you could chop the stalk and put it in with your cabbage or slaw. You said you had like kraut. Kraut. Yeah. You can put chunks of the broccoli stalk in there. I mean, you can actually do anything. That's, you know, what you said about there not being an exact recipe. That's kind of the blessing and the curse of it. You just... (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. I think that people kind of hesitate a little bit because it's not that exact recipe. It's flexible, yeah. as opposed to a canning where there are some very specific safety. Purposes. Oh,
2: yeah. yeah. You better
0: do it right or you'll die.
2: <laughs> Botulism. Yeah. Went to this fermenting. This is early on when I was just sort of starting the whole fermenting thing. And I, I went to a workshop with people that were big fermenters and they did it all the time and they sold fermented stuff. And, and I was really looking forward to that exact formula, you know, like, how do you do it? They were like, you just, you know, you just put some salt in there. And when it's almost a little bit too salty, that's about the right amount. I'm like, really?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's the measurement. Almost a little bit too salty.
2: (laughs) I actually
0: do use some measurements. What I've learned with the, especially with the sourcough, I always have a better result if I weigh the cabbage. Because cabbage head, you know, to say do a cabbage head, the weight on those is so variable, mm-hmm. right? We've really started to focus on weighing that so that I'm giving enough salt but not too much salt. We don't, you know, nobody needs to be here with salty sauerkraut,
2: nobody likes that, right. right? But I also learned a trick if you do a batch and it is too salty, number one, you can rinse it off, and if it's just really unpalatable, you can actually just use it in soup, and that works really well,
1: right? Never has to be wasted, yeah. Can you tell us? A little bit about the idea of a front yard garden and what that means.
0: Yeah. The front yard garden is just exactly what it sounds. It's just planting your vegetables in the front yard.
1: Your vegetables in your front yard?
0: (laughs) The city is coming after people for doing this, right? Because it's not. And I know that, you know, people who have to deal with the homeowner's association. Right. Right environments that, you know, they have to have this much lawn or this much height to their lawn, very, very specific things. So I have been a proponent of encouraging people to plant food because there are, and I have a a post on my site that lists some of these things. There are certain plant crops, certain vegetable crops that are beautiful plants that can be tucked in. Even if your homeowners association is saying, you know, you have to have 80% of your front yard and lawn, you've got an edge. You've got that border and that border can be planted with just a lot of different things. I mean, the thing that's coming to mind right now is that artichoke An artichoke is a perennial plant. It will come back year after year. So you don't plant it once and you'll get a crop for several years. And it's beautiful. It's got very ferny foliage and nobody's going to know that you're growing an artichoke there. Nobody's going to know. So yeah, and I like to encourage people to, to do that, to tuck these different plants in our celeries another beautiful crop. Swiss chard, peppers, eggplant. plant. Tuck them in there. And in the springtime, stick those plants in there let them grow. And people will just think it's part of your beautiful flower border.
1: I love that idea. That's so inspiring. Yeah. I'm going to do it. We have a friend who also
2: teaches planting food as part of your ornamental garden, front yard garden. And their homeowners association actually said no vegetables. They had a rule against vegetables in the front yard. And so they tell this funny little story about how their daughter came home from school and said, Well, we can plant tomatoes because tomatoes are officially a fruit. So I thought that was cute.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And strawberries.
2: Uh huh. I think it's kind of ridiculous,
0: especially where we are in the world right now. Yeah. Price of food is going up. And think about the dollars that people could save just by planting. Yeah.
1: That's what I was going to say earlier when you were talking about the shard and clipping the shard and it grows back. It's literally like growing money on trees,
0: right? (laughs) Like that's that expression. There it is. Yeah. Every single time you go out and cut your celery or cut your chard, it is that much less that you're spending at the grocery store. And it's going to grow back. And it's going to keep providing for you. It's an amazing thing. And chard is super, super easy to grow. If people ask me, like, I have no idea where to start, no idea what to do. I will tell them, go get a pot. You need a pot that's probably a 2 gallon size pot. You can use a five-gallon bucket if you like. You know, whatever you have. If you've got a cat and you buy that kitty litter that comes in a bucket, drill some holes for drainage in the bottom and you can plant in that. And fill it with soil. Good potting soil is better than probably what you would dig out of the dirt and stick a few seeds in the ground and keep it watered. It is just that easy. And that chard is going to produce all season long, Boom. And you have had your first garden and maybe next spring people will be
2: just a little bit. And, you know, there's nothing more beautiful than a big, mature chard plant. They're gorgeous. They're gorgeous. The rainbow chard that has all those different colored stems. And it's so healthy. It's just packed with nutrients. And right. where we are, that charred plant is the last thing to go, I think, in November with the frost. It lasts a long time. Right. And you harvest harvesting it, right? Harvesting it all the time. I've got a couple of them going in my kitchen garden right now, and they're already big, and they're going to get way bigger. And it's like no effort. So spread the word, people. This is easy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One thing, everybody plant a chard plant. Yes. Do it. Hey, I'm inspired. Okay. And I'm going to do it in a container because you told me to. To your point, Chris,
2: people who have homeowners restrictions, they could plant chard and nobody would even know because it's just this big, beautiful, leafy plant. You can get away with that. Right. And feed your family fantastically all summer long. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, just imagine if you had a few of those plants tucked in. I mean, certainly chard isn't going to, you know, one or two or three chard plants isn't going to feed your family for the year. Right. Right. And you're learning. And if you've got kids, they're seeing you produce something There's just a lot of
2: benefits to just growing a little something. And the kale is really beautiful and ornamental as well. Mm-hmm. And can certainly enhance people's front yards and in- Perfectly well. So, I don't know when people have restrictions about planting vegetables in the front. I don't know. I guess they're thinking about big old lanky tomato plants that are flopping around or something. I don't know. It is rather silly, especially as you say in these times and all these supply chain problems and the health problems with people. And we should be encouraging everyone to just grow a little bit of food as you do with your website, however and wherever you can. And a little bit is better than nothing. So, yeah. Baby steps, I say. And you have a course on your website, right? I do. I launched
0: a course last year specifically geared towards beginning gardeners and gardeners who want to grow food in containers. It's an introduction to the idea of gardening and, you know, learning what that entails. And, you know, like, for instance, I I talked about using a a bucket and making sure that it had drainage holes. So that's something a lot of people don't know. If you're going to plant, you need to have a drainage hole in there. So I've addressed a lot of these different things for people who are struggling with how do I start growing some of my own food? And I specifically, like I say, I I really wanted to make it something that was accessible to people who lived in smaller places, people who lived in apartments who are limited so that they can learn how to grow some of that food for themselves, even just in containers.
1: So this book and your site, I just love the name Attainable Sustainable and I love Attainable Sustainability. And I just think that's so important to like put those two words together. And I also love thinking about sustainability and how it's such a big word and it's used a lot and it's very broad and covers a lot of things. And I think it's a very actually personal word, depending on who's talking about it and what you're talking about. And so I'm wondering what sustainability means to you and this attainable, sustainable, what that is for you. Is it growing your own food? And what does that mean? And yeah, you can answer that however you like.
0: Well, I, I think you're right. I think it's incredibly personal. It depends house to house to house and what that means. My son, many years ago, early on in my blog writing, it might've been a recipe for granola or something that included oats. And his response to me was, mom, and, and you know, I mean, at the time he was maybe 13. That's not very sustainable. And what he meant was, I'm not growing that. I'm not growing the oats. Should I really be including that in my recipe? And I kind of looked a little sideways at him. Smart kid. (laughs) Yeah, good point. (laughs) (laughs) And he's right. If I was required to live just on what I was raising here, it would look very, very differently than it actually does. But for me, what that means is I'm buying some grains and such that I can't grow here. So that I can cook more of my own food or prepare more of my own food. you know. So I maintain this kind of soft pantry that includes the beans, the legumes, the grains. Those are things that I buy. I, I don't grow those myself, but they are part of a healthy diet for us. They are part of a budget-friendly diet for us. And it allows me to cook at home rather than going out to dinner or going and getting takeout or buying some other prepared foods that the grocery store is selling so commonly. And this is where I always say I'm a big believer in, you know, better best. Yeah. The best thing if I was growing all of my own grains and I was only eating things that were, you know, produced in my garden. And a lot of our meals are like that, but not all of them. So this, what I'm doing, buying the the grains in bulk to me is better than going and buying a can of chili at the store. And I have said from the start, I am not 100% sustainable you know i've been very honest about that and i am still learning and improving myself i'm making these small steps and i'm encouraging other people to start taking some small steps too because if we don't start taking small steps we're never going to get there
2: and as we say so often on here and so many of our guests say the same thing is when you start talking about perfection or you start talking about everything has to be a certain way, then you're going to just set everybody up for failure. And you're also not going to be encouraging people to try these things, these small steps, as you say. So we say perfection is the enemy of sustainability because it discourages people. So yeah, we have to buy some of our food, of course, because that's the world we live in now. That's our system. and those of us that are seeking more self-reliance, it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to be completely self-reliant. That's just not the way things are. So yes, we have to encourage people to do what they can when they can and be good with it. And also another thing we talk about is once you get going on this stuff, you want to do more and you will take little steps and then you'll be encouraged to take more steps because it's fun It's very satisfying. It's very gratifying. And there's a reward. There's a reward for it in the way you feel. And when you realize what you're doing for your health and your environment and for the soil and all of that, then you want to do more.
0: It is gratifying. I think gratifying is a good word. And I think that you're trying to on too much and assume that if I'm not going to be perfect, I'm not going to do it. It gets overwhelming. Instead of just thinking about, you know, when I'm in the grocery store, for instance, and I see this wall of salad dressings that I can buy, I can buy that, but if I started thinking twice about things, maybe I'll realize I can make salad dressing. I don't need to bring that plastic bottle home. So, you know, how could I learn how to make salad dressing?
2: Yeah. An easy one. Right. That's such an easy one. You just learn a little vinegar oil and salt and how delicious that is. And you'll never have to buy salad dressing again. Oh, and when I learned to make mayonnaise, how easy that was. It's a fun one too. One minute mayonnaise recipe that I got from Northwest Edible. Her name is Erica Strauss and she has it in her book. Uh, do you know her? I, I know of her.
0: We've crossed paths online.
2: Okay. So she has this recipe. I think it's called magic mayonnaise. I think that's what it's called, uh, but it's so simple. use you, immersion, Yeah. Immersion blender. So once I learned that, like years ago, I will never buy mayonnaise again. And it's great. And I don't want to. And this is so easy. (laughs) Yeah. As long as you keep your pantry stocked, right? And you boil in some eggs on hand. It's easy. Mm -hmm. so easy. I made it today and cut up some garlic scapes
1: in it. Oh, that's a good idea. It was so good. I put it in my egg salad. Oh, man. It was so good. I will say. Just full representation. I feel the same way. I love making that mayonnaise. Sometimes I do buy mayonnaise in a glass jar. Yeah, that's so, okay too. Hey, everybody. <laughs> that's okay, Emma. <laughs> you
0: know what? I will tell you is the other thing that I know personally I've come up against, and I'm sure that other people do too. If I have to buy something, I do choose the glass jar rather than, than bring yeah. it out of plastic. I have a real problem with plastic. But I live in a household where there are a couple of other people who live here too. Yeah. <laughs> and, shop. and what they bring home sometimes is not exactly what I would bring home so if you were to go to my refrigerator right now it's not perfect I am not perfect this household is not perfect I always like to remind people of that That you know what what we see online is the highlight what we see online is the
1: curated plastic things out of their fridge and then took the picture
0: <laughs> <laughs> although I've had people think it was very hilarious to see when I spilled things all over my kitchen but it's the bad stuff. We're showing the pretty pictures because that encourages people. It does. But at the same time, it sets us up to be this level of perfection that is not true. Mm-hmm. When the book came out, it's beautiful. It's, you know, it's National Geographic. It's has the, got these gorgeous photos. It's, you know, really, really nicely done. And that's all on them. I didn't have anything to do with that, that they just made a beautiful book out of it. But I looked at it and I thought, this, is- this isn't attainable <laughs> But then I looked, then I looked around my house, and I saw the dust and the lawn that needed doing, dishes that needed washing, and I thought, I don't know, this feels like, you yeah. know, maybe not a, a good representation. But I had a friend, a friend of mine, kind of looked at me, and she said, "Would you want them to put ugly pictures in the Yeah. <laughs> I like, no, but yeah, just it's showing the highlights.
1: That is like a really good thing to remember. Yeah, and again, going back to what we were saying about not being discouraged if it's not all. Perfect. Or Instagrammable. (laughs) So have you run across the term slow living? And if so, what does it mean to you?
0: I've heard the term and probably used the term. I think it's just, you know, for me, it's a matter of being a little bit more focused on what's happening around me in season at a specific time. And Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty simple person. I'm not chasing that dream of all the stuff or the nicest house or all of the experiences or, or what have you. It's just, it's just, just not me. So I feel like I've always done this slow living thing. It's just part of who I am. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's my background and that's how I live. Could I slow down a little bit more? I probably could. I tend to work a lot in my, my own business. hmm you know, I do really have the flexibility and probably should step away a little bit more than I do. Mm -hmm.
2: So does attainable, sustainability, your website, is it mostly about food or do you talk about other things as well?
0: There's a little bit of diversity there in what I cover, but mostly the things that my readers are very interested in is gardening and growing our own food, learning to preserve that food, whatever that is, whether it's fermentation or canning or dehydrating. You know, figuring out how to stretch that, and then kind of a DIY pantry collection too. As far as baking your own bread and cooking with pantry items. In fact, that's I, I do have another book coming out. But I'm still in the process of writing it, and that will be all focused entirely. You're the first to hear that. Oh, it, it will be focused entirely. The- Hearing it here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On creating staples at home.
2: Creating staples like like mayonnaise. <laughs>
0: Stable from scratch, it is called, and it will be portion of the book is going to teach people how to create and replicate some of the box mixes and such that they count on from the store. Oh, fun! So a brownie mix that you can make at home and have that ready to to just whip up a batch of brownies when you are feeling like you need chocolate. And, and then a good part of the book is on food preservation.
1: I wanted that book right now. I'm so excited.
2: <laughs> so, Chris, what does good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that any way you want. For me. The idea of good
0: dirt, everything has its basis in good dirt, everything. And it makes me remember when my kids were little, my kids were homeschooled and I was teaching a class. I had a a class of a bunch of kids and I was trying to get them to think. And what we started talking about was the idea of tracing everything we ate back to the dirt. And and I was trying to teach these kids, and it's still a concept that is lost on many, I think. Dirt is so important. People will complain about calling it dirt rather than soil. But
2: yeah,
0: I mean, that's the basis of everything. If you don't have a dirt in your garden, things won't grow. It's everything. And that's where our food should be coming from. So I would talk to these kids and say, if you're drinking a glass of milk, where is that coming from? And they would start thinking, well, it came from a cow. Well, what did the cow eat? The cow ate grass. That grew dirt, you know. Then we could, then we kind of went off filter a little bit and and could say, what about your lunchables? Can you trace that back to the dirt? If you can't trace it back to the dirt,
1: maybe it's
0: not a good idea. It, you know, <laughs> not healthiest option for him. this was you know kind of kind of a, a fun thing that we did with the kids, but they got a kick out of that. But you know, the idea that everything goes back to the dirt,
1: yeah, even us. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> even we do.
0: Then we eventually <laughs> we <laughs> become
1: dirt. that got dark no i like i love that exercise yeah or if you don't know how it gets back to dirt like if there's steps that you're unsure of what happens that's like
2: but then, yeah the lunchable is a great example because it's like all this plastic and stuff and it's really more plastic
1: than food isn't it yeah i guess so when you think about like the volume of like what makes up the lunchable yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so in closing, what you would like our listeners to most understand about the work that you do?
0: I don't know that it's necessarily about the work that I do, but I am here as a resource for people to need that. But what I want people to take away or what I hope they take away is that making changes in their lives is doable. And it's doable if it's done in small increments, baby steps, like we talked about. But I think that if they can kind of step back and so much of the things that we do in our lives are habits. And that's, you know, whether we, like we talked about throwing salad dressing in our shopping cart or only not keeping a pantry full of things and having to run to the store every time we, we need a, you know, that one ingredient, those are the kinds of things that are detrimental to the environment that can be detrimental to our health. So I always encourage people to pay attention and look at those habits. Just watch what's going in your shopping cart, say. What is it that's going in there? Is there one of those things that you can figure out how to make at home or do from scratch? You're not going to do it all. That's just crazy making and it's going to just exhaust you. But one thing, start with one. And as you start with that one, it's going to build and that change is going to end up being something that sticks a little bit for the rest of your life, really.
1: Yeah, that's so helpful to hear. I mean, obviously, that's something that I feel like, or maybe not, obviously, but I feel like that's something... We hear a lot, we talk about, you know, it's just small habits, just one step, but I don't think that's something that can be like said too much. Even for me, I can't hear that enough. It's always encouraging. It's always a good reminder Yeah. in whatever area, you know, even there's some areas I feel great about like, oh, you know, I kind of got that, but then I want to get better at this thing over here and it can all feel overwhelming. And so much of the conversation I feel like in general, not just in the sustainability world is like, we're all trying to like solve all our problems and fix ourselves, right? And I also think there might be, for better or for worse, like maybe too much of that. I don't know. But just the reminder that little by little, that's all it is. Little by little.
2: Yeah. And I like what you said about just look what's in your shopping cart. Yeah, that just little exercise, just that simple. Just Mm -hmm. look at it. We're even paying
0: attention to how much trash you're generating each week. What's okay. going out of the Is there a way that you can eliminate
2: that? It's just noticing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Paying attention. Mm-hmm. That's what we say on the first paragraph of Lady Farmer God to slow living. What is slow living? It's mainly it's just paying attention. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well Well, thank you so much for all your insights and for sharing Attainable Sustainable with us. And we would like to encourage all of our listeners to go check it out and see what you have to offer there.
1: Can you tell our listeners where they can find you and how they can access all of your wonderful knowledge?
0: Sure, sure. I am at attainablesustainable.net and on all the socials, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, I have a community that people can join if they're interested in joining that. And of course, on my website, you can find information about my five-gallon garden course for people who are interested in container gardening.
1: So fun. I might have to do that. Well, this has been so fun. We really appreciate you've such great calming energy and you're like so inspiring to talk to. So thank you, Chris. It was lovely. It's lovely. It must be that Hawaii island vibe vibes
0: (laughs) thank you for being on of course of course thank you so much it was lovely meeting
1: both of you thanks so much thank you you're so welcome bye-bye rest of your day bye-bye thank you for tuning in to the good dirt podcast if you enjoyed this episode we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt this show is produced by lady farmer a slow living lifestyle community and the original music is composed and performed by john kingsley For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.